Paris, thanks so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. I know that we haven't had a chance to really like connect all that much before the show, but on today's episode, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a female founder and also a bit about your experience being a board member and a few other things that are pertinent. But before we get into all that, let's start at the beginning. So what was Paris like when you were a bit younger? What did you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> what did I want to be when I grew up? Yeah. Okay, so... I guess for me, I wanted to perform. I was, mm. I, I was actually trained as a ballerina, believe it or not. Really? I trained, yeah, I was in ballet classes from the age of three. And then I was dancing a lot. Um, and my parents, bless their hearts, they were always kind of very encouraging of that. But they were kind of like, you know, it's not a career. <laughs> So when I told my parents I wanted to do dance full time, they were a bit like, mm, can we have a compromise, please? Oh, boy. And I think their compromise was like, can you go into like something creative, but not dance? <laughs> That's not reliant on your body and that, you know, yeah. probably have to stop quite a relatively young age. Mm. So we negotiated. I think I kind of decided um, that I would do acting instead. And they were kind of like, OK, we'll go with that <laughs> as long as you do it with English at university or something. So I ended up just you know, doing and pursuing acting a little bit more. I actually got an injury and wasn't able to pursue ballet anymore. Okay. Um, and then I just was doing acting and I was just one of these kids that was like a bit of a nerd, was, you know, at dancing school all weekend, mm. was like very busy, you know, always going to classes. I was doing cheerleading. I was doing lots of different activities, always super busy. Okay. Um, but yeah, very much creative. Um, I went to the Brit School mm. uh, for performing arts um, and I did uh, theatre there. I did acting there. Then I went to drama school kind of um, to do my degree, um, which wasn't business related at all. <laughs> um, and I come from an entrepreneurial family. So okay. my family are all entrepreneurs. Okay. What kind? Like what do, what do they do? So my parents work together. <laughs> They've okay. worked together since as long as I remember. They've had several different businesses and they still have several businesses. Um, they've been in real estate. Um, they had uh, restaurants. Um, they've built chains of day nurseries and all sorts. So they, they do quite a few different things. Um, and I, they've always been obviously trying to get me to work for them. <laughs> Uh, I've always was resisting as a as a young younger person. I didn't want to work for my parents. I did you not want to work thing. in nurseries? Or what, what kind of thirteen year old <laughs> were you? <laughs> I did definitely didn't want to do that. Uh, eventually, they got me to. But um, yeah, I was like, no, I don't want to do. I don't want to do business. I never perceived myself to be a business person or or an entrepreneur. I wanted to do hmm. the exact opposite. Why? Um, I guess you know. I don't know why. I didn't necessarily think what my parents did was cool because mm. I don't know. I, I guess um, they were always super busy. I hardly ever saw them actually. I had an au pair most of the time or I was being looked after by somebody else. So they were mm. super busy. I never really saw them that very much. Mm. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I, I guess back then representation wasn't really a thing. So for me, my idols were like actresses and actors. So <laughs> <laughs> looking at like, you know, I guess, you know, the sitcoms and the comedy shows that we used to see from the US and mm. like looking at, you know, and aspiring to be in that space, mm. the typical space, you know, 
acting, sports. Those are the kind of representation that mm. we kind of saw. Mm. So that's, I think, why a lot of us aspired to to be in that space. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's kind of weird because I wanted to do the same thing as well. When I was younger, I wanted to be like Will Smith because that's who everyone sees and that's <laughs> the cool guy and everything. Yeah. And as I've, uh, uh, as I've gotten older, the person I want to be like now is more like, you know, Robert Smith or you know, those kind of entrepreneurs that were kind of under the radar until more recently when it's kind of been cool to be a black nerd or, you know, someone that's an entrepreneur and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely resonate with the kind of the people that you see when you're younger is yeah. what you think, oh, that person looks like me. I want to be like that person yeah. until you get a bit older and you're like, wait a minute, being that mold is a lot more tough than it actually seems. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. But actually, from so let's go from younger Paris going into maybe the first time that you went, went to the workforce. So what was that like? Did you have a regular job and then did you start like entrepreneurship immediately or how did that, that sort of kick off? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was... I think I, I graduated and I came to London and I I got a regular job. Yeah, I, my first job, I worked for a real estate um, agency. Mm. Um, my parents got me the job there and I was just there for like six months, like selling houses, mm. which was fun. Um, it was really stressful, but it was fun and I was pretty good at it. Um, and I did that for six months and then um, I moved to Manchester actually. I think my boyfriend at the time was doing a master's. So I just followed him up there. And um, while I while he was doing his master's, I kind of just got a job. I think it was headhunting. Okay. And I was doing that for a few months. And after a few months, I was just like, I can't do this. I'm, I, I don't want to work for somebody else. I was working for pharmaceutical companies. And um, I thought, well, I, why don't I just set something up? myself so that's kind of how i kind of started was it that my bad business. <laughs> that you didn't want to work with someone else you're like what, what was it that made you think man i can't do this anymore i personally think that it was the onboarding into the organization mm. and um you know i ha i kept having like ideas to do things differently and stuff and i guess because i was really early on in my career mm. I, I was kind of a bit stifled mm. and squashed and i think if i compared it to being in my you know when i worked for my parents mm. obviously i can have much more freedom to make decisions mm. uh be creative with ideas and stuff so it was really like a culture shock for me to have a massive micromanagement kind of structure where I wasn't allowed to do the things that I thought would be best for the business. Yeah. So I almost had that. I wasn't arrogant, but I was definitely like, oh, do I have to listen to you? Mm. Like, my ideas are better. <laughs> so that's where I was like, oh, man. I was probably very annoying to manage at that you stage. <laughs> Yeah, it was probably very annoying. And then I just thought, let me do them all a favor and let me start my own thing. Yeah. Were you nervous? I mean, that, so, that's kind of nerve wracking when you're like, all right, I'm going to stop doing this. Let me actually take that leap. Let me do something that's a bit outside the mold. But I guess your parents were entrepreneurs. So for you, it was kind of, this is expected or this is not as scary as it seems? Yeah. In fact, my parents were the ones that actually pushed me to start. At first, I, when, I, when we moved back to London, um, I, I kind of wanted to pursue acting for a little while just to kind of see like whether or not you know it was worth me doing because I had like obviously invested a lot in like doing it all these years and I was kind of like I'm not sure if I want to really start a business straight away so I did do that for a little while and it, it kind of got boring after a while and then I was just <laughs> like I didn't really get anywhere with it so yeah. 
Um, so I just decided, my parents were actually like, well, why don't you just start a business? Just mm. do it. Just think about your skills. That's exactly what they said to me. They said, think about what you're good at and just build something ar- around that. And we'll support you and just like help you go get through it. Oh, that's great. So, so yeah, that's what I did really. I was really lucky, but they were kind of like, they were always pushing me to start a business. So when I actually kind of like caved in from the whole acting dream, mm. they were super happy. They were like, come on, let's do it. Let's just, <laughs> let's catch her now. <laughs> so they bargained with me and yeah, they've always pushed me to start something. They've, I, you know, it's, it was always common practice in my household to be like, you're always going to be your own boss. You're never going to work for someone else. It was just like huh. working for someone else was just like a strange concept. Which is so interesting because growing up in an African household, it's kind of like being an engineer, lawyer, doctor. But if you want to be an entrepreneur, it's kind of like, what are you doing? Or anyone that was an entrepreneur did it on the side, like a side hustle. But yeah. you had to have sort of a main thing that you did but in your family i don't know if it's more of a british thing it was more like entrepreneurship at all costs that kind of thing it really was i think you know i think because both my parents were like college dropouts my mum did history of art and then quit Ah. she got into like the uh, art school and my you know she was doing history of art and she went and did traveling and like my parents were quite i suppose they have like their own kind of vibe and they're very much like kind of like you know, free-spirited. Mm. So they just didn't do the whole education thing, which mm. I know is massively pushed um, in a lot of African households. But they were more like, let's do business, let's let's build. So they would hustle hard, like they would work all the time. You know, mm. I never really saw my parents when I was growing up. Wow. I just remember just vividly seeing them for moments. I remember smelling my mum's perfume and watching her go out the door in her like 80s power suit with yeah. like shoulder pads. Yeah. And thinking, wow. <laughs> because crazy. they were like proper full on. But, mm. you know, I think they, the thing about them, I think they just were influenced by people around them yeah. who were in business. So they were always around people who were entrepreneurial and Mm. they were influenced they were kind of like taken under the wing of some very entrepreneurial people had many different businesses and kind of brought into the game Mm. and i think it's it's interesting because you know if you're around a network of entrepreneurial people it kind of rubs off on you exactly you become (laughs) the uh byproduct of your environment right the five people you hang out with or the people you spend the most time with they rub off on you and i I keep seeing this thing on instagram or facebook whatever it is where it's like choose your circle wisely because if you hang out with five millionaires you become the sixth and all that kind of stuff so it's interesting to see how your perception or your view of life or the things you ended up doing was a result of you know your upbringing what you saw what you wanted to aspire to and how those different influences played in Uh, but i wanted to touch a bit on being sort of a female entrepreneur as well. So you decided to take this leap. Was there, did that ever cross your mind that I'm a female entrepreneur or you're just like, man, the market is the market. I'm just going to offer this service and gender or race or any of those other things never really came into play for you. No, when I was starting out, it was never ever ever that. I was only made aware of it only a few, only very recently, say in the last few years where it's been a thing. Mm. But when I was starting out, I mean, it was never a thing. I never was like, I'm an, I'm a female entrepreneur mm. or I'm a, you know, a black entrepreneur. It was never, ever a thing for me to think in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just like. Just cracked on. Yeah. We just cracked on really. <laughs> <laughs> we were just like oblivious to it all. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, know, yeah. so it was, it was, it was just something that we did. And, 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 you know, um, 
I guess again because it wasn't new it was something that I'd always seen mm. around me like people starting businesses and then when you're an entrepreneur you tend to kind of like go to networking events and meet other entrepreneurs and then you you form a network and a community and you know it's just just the way that you're kind of surrounded by people you're just inspired and empowered by them you're fine just like just similarly to acting when I was in when I was doing acting all my friends are actors. Mm. So I was in this like acting bubble. Yeah. So when I'm now I'm in entrepreneurship, it's kind of the similar bubble mm. where you just go around people. You mm. just tend to, you know, it's like a magnet attract people in the same kind of position as you. Yeah. So, yeah. But it was never really a thing. I, I don't feel it ever kind of helped. I didn't, I wasn't aware that it was, I wasn't consciously aware I was mm. being ever discriminated against mm. or, you know, held back in any way. Which is probably, you know, ignorance is bliss. It was probably a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> sort of Paris versus Paris. Right. And then you got to figure it out on your yeah. own. And yeah. no one really cares whether you're blue, orange, yeah. green. Yeah. yeah. I was totally clueless. Like, I was totally clueless. Back in the early days of me starting my business, I was clueless to the fact that I was a woman walking in to a room full of men and, like, with a pink laptop. I remember I used to have a pink laptop bag. Oh, man. <laughs> Were you the stylish one in the room? Del. I used to have a pink <laughs> Dell. I was like, you know, proper like, but um, I got all the contracts. Why? Because you were just that hot. You were just so on top of it. I just, because I just totally and utterly like, I just believe that I was going to get everything that, and I was really great at what I did. I was like, mm. so good. It's interesting because a lot of people have in, uh, imposter syndrome, right? Where you mm. think I actually am not, I want to say worthy, but I don't see myself as getting that contract or doing that, but it doesn't sound like you had much of that. And I've, personally gone through it as well where it's like hmm i haven't seen many people like me doing this yeah and then you think am i actually capable am i not and all sure. those kinds of things did you ever have imposter syndrome no because i never worked for a corporate i was never oh. in the corporate world long enough this is my theory on imposter syndrome all i was right, never in the corporate world long enough to get imposter syndrome because if you're like say for example you're just grown and raised in this environment where you have all this creative freedom mm. and you're told like you're not told this is where you put your position this is how good you are and you're not you know um graded on performance and go through appraisals and get your confidence you know in the kind of corporate <laughs> structure or any form of structure mm. like that I think you know in the corporate world it's super competitive like you're told that like you're you're judged and you're told you know the value your value and your worth by your superiors who might or may or may not be smarter than you mm. or cap more capable than you and there's loads of politics happening and all this and it can probably even the education system like the formal education system based on your your grade at university based on that piece of paper you know you you, you create a, a value and you create a, a, an identity and mm. self-worth and I didn't have any of that you're just like I'm I'm here like, and I'm good and write whatever the check. I was like you know I will be you know if I if I close the deal I close the deal if I don't I don't I don't give a crap about anything else. Yeah. So that's basically how I was like, like, you know, in sales, that's how I kind of operated. So it was like, you know, you do the deal and that's, you know, you're, you're either good at it or you're not. It doesn't matter, you know, and all these other things don't matter. Mm. So I guess that's how I wasn't, didn't have imposter syndrome mm. because in sales, it's like you sell. And obviously a lot of the, you know, my early, my early businesses were all sales, were all, all done, you know, deals that were done and stuff like that so very much great cash flow businesses 
And, you know, we used to get pumped up. We were we, we, we were like, let's make this money, you know. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I love we that. Like. Let's make this money. <laughs> make that this should be money. the slogan of any business. Let's make this money. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> then we went into different industries and it was like completely, it was, it's, it's a very different, um, you know, environment. You're built, maybe you're building product, maybe you're, you know, there's a load of R&D that needs to go into like a lot of the things that we're building. So it's a completely different tempo. Mm. Obviously, we're looking at valuation. We're looking at a completely different business model when you're looking at technology. Yeah. Um, so it's so different. But, you know, in the early days, it was just so nice just to have that experience of being able to, you know, close deals, get cash, you know, and yeah. just like a simple life. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm actually reminded of when I got my first job out of college, I was a sales guy. And it was such a bizarre experience for me because I was an engineer coming out of like a good school, like kind of nerdy. And I was thrown into a sales job. And here I'm knocking on people's doors, getting rejected. Get and rejected. no one really cares about your education or where you come no from. It's cares. like, can you get the sale done? And I feel like all entrepreneurs should go through sort of a sales right. and a networking uh, kind of job or yeah. function at some point. Yeah. How did you learn how to be a good sales person or saleswoman, should I say? Was it just natural or were you <laughs> like picking tips and tricks along the way? Let me put it this way. My first job, actually the first, like when I was selling um, houses, um, you know, we had used to have team meetings every single morning. And I remember I had a manager who used to just say the most, like just scream profanities over us for about half an hour telling us that if we didn't do this, this is going to happen and that. And we just, just sit there and t like take, just it. take it. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, you know, and I'd literally dream about like selling houses. I'd be like on edge the whole time. Like it was so scary, but it was just so exhilarating at the same time. Yeah. It was just kind of like one of those kind of weird things. It's like pleasure and pain at the same time. It was like, if I don't, if I do this deal, my manager's going to be super happy and mm. he's going to like, you know, send me to New York for the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Right? So yeah. it's like, and there's a lot of cash on the table. Um, So it's like, you know, if you close this deal, you're going to get, you know, 15K. Mm. Like, it's just like in commission. So yeah. like for you, even though you're like being battered and you're being like cursed out mm. and humiliated in front of everybody, it's like yeah. the Wolf of Wall Street kind of vibe, you know, you just, <laughs> you're waiting for that close. It's like, it was like that. And I was around loads of guys guys and it was like you know i'd i'd you know be like i'd have to toughen up i'd have to man up so to yeah. speak a woman just, up yeah a woman up <laughs> <laughs> it was fun i i like i kind of liked it i thought it was kind of hilarious at the same time yeah I didn't really take it on board or get really upset about it. I got quite a thick skin. I think it was my acting background that gave me a thick skin. Oh, yeah. You know, being told you're, you know, you're not good enough or like for years and years or, yeah. you know, rejection is just, you know, you have to have a thick skin to do acting. So mm. when I went into the sales roles, I was like, yeah, you can swear at me. I don't care. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, bother right? me. Yeah. <laughs> I want to like touch that. a bit on, on the, the networking side of things as well, because a big part of being successful is unfortunately or fortunately depending on what side of the coin you fall networking and knowing the right people and yeah. being able to go to things i'm sure there are instances in your career where knowing a certain person was so valuable maybe at that point or further down the line but how do you think people or what advice would you give to someone that wants to network and go from acting to being in the vc space or doing certain things how do you even start where do you begin how do you even go that uh, or undergo that journey should I say yeah I think it's just transferable skills like so many so like so much of my acting comes out in like my role uh as an entrepreneur like obviously public speaking was just like had it in the bag public speaking yeah like um just 
nose diving to like the most important person in the room mm. like whatever mm. like i'd just rock up to whoever i wouldn't even be like i'd have no imposter syndrome whatsoever I'd, mm. if i was a little bit nervous i'd just like pretend i was playing a role <laughs> ah. like i could even like use Penelope my acting Cruz skills yeah i was yeah. like right now i'm like the boss <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i i used acting massively in fact it, was, it helped me so much to fake it till i made it ah. so it was like yeah, it was literally fake it till you make it. It was like, okay, now I have to play this role because if I don't play this role, I'm going to look like a sucker. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. So I need to play this role so that yeah. people, you know, command authority Yeah. and get people to listen. I remember there'll be times where I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to rock up to this, this person. I'm going to have to, you know, convince them to have a meeting with me. I'm going to have like 90 seconds to do it so I can't screw up and mm. I can't like trip my words. And I have to fully believe and command authority and yeah. get them to do it. And it happens. That's how you do it. You have to be, you have to have the audacity to kind of like sometimes just go for what you want. Mm. Um, I think that's just it. And just being at the right place at the right time. Confidence is a lot. But obviously you have to deliver. It can't just all be like hot air and gas. Or bravado and you no know what I mean? substance. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have to deliver at the end of the day. I'm curious as to what... Uh, the biggest, I don't want to say uh, mistake, but have you ever been in awkward situations where you've tried to, I don't know, be something uh, to someone and it just didn't work out because either they probed you too much or something like that? But yeah. has it ever gone badly for you? It sounds like it's worked out a lot. So I encourage other yeah. people to sort of fake it till you make it. But has that ever gone badly for you? Or? Yeah. I think overpromising has uh. been, yeah, overpromising is always like a lesson that you learn in the hard way mm. because sometimes you're kind of like you get pumped up and you kind of you know to to close the deal or to get the contract you promise you over promise mm. and it's awful not being able to deliver on that um and obviously there's always room for like you know I suppose you have to give a bit of space because you can never ever predict fully how it's going to turn out but there was one contract that I was at I, that I that you know I didn't really I was super eager to get the contract because the numbers behind it, but I wasn't really understanding the implications of it and the cost of it. Mm. And, um, you know, there are some contracts that I had to literally pray myself out of because um, it was just not cost effective. I wasn't making any money in them. So yeah. I had to learn the hard way for certain contracts. And again, you know, what you've got to also understand is that, that people will subcontract a lot out to smaller companies and businesses and try and cut costs. Of, you know, it's, in the yeah. subcontracting world, like people give you contracts and yeah. take margins off the contracts and do that. So you're ending up sometimes striving a lot more than you should um, mm. and it can be difficult to deliver. So overpromising is always something that I would try and not do. Um, and I've learned like not to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, generally... Um, Outside of that, you know, obviously the legalities of signing a contract and actually, you know, promising to adhere to certain things mm -hmm. like, you know, you can negotiate as much as you want. But when you sign that contract, you're, <laughs> you you're have to be compliant. Yeah. You're on the hook. So it's it's just making sure that you have like the proper legal mm. people looking over contracts for you and understanding what your exit strategies are. And, um, you know, just really making sure that you have the support to do that. And, um, you know, you as a you know a kind of entrepreneur in a young early stage you're always going to make mistakes so it's good to have mentors around you and people that can support you yeah um and always i'd always say 
get counsel, get legal counsel where you can, but also just get counsel from people who may have more experience in the industry. Um, so that can help you before you make major decisions. Mm. You, so, when you mentioned subcontracting, I'm thinking of all the times I've called a business that is James and Jameson Inc. And then on the phone is like Kumar from India. Sure. And I'm like, wait, this isn't the same company. And you figure out it's been subcontracted to a guy that's subcontracted and right. went right the way through. Do you think that that's a good thing? Like giving, I don't want to say a bigger piece of the pie to other people or outsourcing things to others mm -hmm. versus trying to do it all in-house? How do yeah. you negotiate that discussion with yourself before deciding, no, I actually can take this on mm -hmm. um, and meet that demand or you know adhere to that contract versus let me just outsource this and, and get people or get the help that I need? Yeah. I think if you're if you're if you're in maybe a service industry type business or you know you you know I think as 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 an early stage business subcontracting is a great way to get your foot in the door mm. get a track record so finding you know people in your space delivering that might you might be able to deliver you know at a you know a cheaper cost for them and actually but then you're able to show them you know you have to say okay I'm, I've got a, I've got a subcontract with this organization so for for me a lot of the 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 subcontracts that I took on in my business led to bigger contracts because then I had a track record oh. so I, I I was I started off subcontracting and then I started to become prime con contractor so mm -hmm. you know then I started to have like more direct contact with clients um, and then obviously the margins increased and stuff like that. So it's a great way to start. Yeah. Um, and it's a good negotiation tool as well, because then you can actually say to the client that, that you've got a contract with this supplier. I can deliver this percentage of this contract for you for this price, mm. meaning that you're not delivering it. I'll You'll just m monitor my delivery. Mm. And it's a good way to kind of do that. Um, and then obviously, you know, if you've got the big, if you've got the kind of like the monopoly on, on the contracts, then you have the power to say, OK, I can subcontract this. I can bring people in. I'm kind of a very much a big believer of bringing in your people, bringing in your friends. So yeah. sometimes it can be a bit challenging, but... It's like, oh yeah, Ray can do this. Let's get him to do it. Oh, Ray, what are you doing? <laughs> right? But yeah. um, I guess, you know, I, I would always give... I mean, even my, my, when I exit my business, I, I, I sold like a lot of my contracts to, you know, people that I, I'd been working with for a very long time. Hmm. And, um, you know, I do believe in kind of like, you know giving out stuff I mm. feel like things come to you more when mm. you're kind of giving out giving people opportunities mm. you can do everything in-house but there's also massive benefit in having a, a supply chain or a consortium of companies that you're working towards and I think that's you if you leverage it correctly mm. it can actually be quite a powerful tool so I would work a lot in with partners strategic partners to deliver on bigger contracts so we'd, we'd tender for a big contract, for example, for a big corporate who, say, wanted you to deliver like all of their recruitment, all of their consultancy. Mm. But I'd do it maybe with three or four partners. So it kind of mitigates the risk across, you know, four different organizations. As long as you have a good structure and governance between you to deliver um, for the client on time, it can actually be quite a good strategy, especially because mm. a lot of contracts are delivered or given out based on your ability to obviously deliver and and also looking at your financials. So the due diligence done on your business, you might not have the turnover to deliver a contract of say four or five million, but mm. if you partnered with three or four organizations, 
then from a financial perspective, mm. there's less risk and you can actually tender for bigger contracts. So it depends what business you're in, really. But um, there are benefits to creating, um, you know, a supply chain to go and, you know, tender for larger, larger contracts. I wanted to touch a bit on the, the trust side of things because you're talking about governance and looking at financials. It sounds like trust is a big part of it. And I mean, based on my own personal experience as well, you want to work with people that you trust. I guess that's why you're saying, you know, you brought your friend in or whatever it is, because mm -hmm. there's a certain shared history there and a certain understanding of you trust the level of work or quality of work, but then also that they won't, won't try to like screw you in the back and things yeah. like that. Right. So how did you go about formulating trust? Were you quick to trust in, in the onset with mm -hmm. either the person that gave you the contract or your suppliers or how did you you know, you know did, were you standoffish and be like all right let's see how this goes or did you try and put in an infrastructure to you know ensure that you didn't need to trust them because it was yeah. in the contract and in their best interest to work in a certain way but how did you negotiate that topic of trust along your journey yeah i think that's a really interesting question i think for me my but I've always operated I've never really operated in the b2c space so mm. I've always operated b2b um so from a trust perspective I've my, all my partners that I'm bringing in would have had you know contracts with organizations and companies and in order to get those contracts in the first place whether they be public sector or private sector there's a there's a level of um due diligence that you have to go through um, and compliance that you have to, to go through in order to even be, you know, considered for the contracts. And that can be very time consuming and very sometimes costly to, mm. to actually, you know, have all of the things in place. So so for us, you know, when we were operating and delivering, you know, multi-million pound contracts, it made sense for us to come together um, in a consortium. So we would deliver contracts based on our specific areas um, and that was quite, you know, a popular way to deliver and a great way to deliver because um, it meant that, you know, we were coming together as an organization. We could just tender for bigger contracts. Mm. Um, and, you know, for us, I would always work with people who I'd known for quite a long time. So, so their history? Yeah, there was people, there were people there who I had history with in my own organization. Um, a lot of my kind of right hand people, we would live together. I've always, really? I've, yeah. All right. We live together. We we do community. Like for me, it's always been about doing community with the people and my business partners. So Does community mean drinking on a Friday night kind of thing, or what kind of community? community. <laughs> well, I would say like we break bread. Like we just we have community. So like um, it's like it just depends. Like for me, like for my like executive assistants, for my business partners, they would always live with me. It just happened that they would always end up living with me. Mm. So we were very close um, and, you know, we we knew each other. We knew when we were having bad days. We knew, you know, we just knew, I suppose, the kind of, I suppose, characteristics mm. and the values of each other. So we were able to understand each other a lot better. There was a lot more grace with each other. Mm. Um, there was a lot more transparency. Um, and it just worked really well because we were like, you know, obviously when you're um, when you're uh, self-employed and when you're running a business, you don't check out nine to five. You're working 24, seven, three, six, five. In fact, we're working most weekends yeah. together. We're always talking about work. We're working like, you know, 18 hour days sometimes to deliver on time. So the fact that we could be in the office and then come home maybe seven, eight o'clock, then we'd work in my living room 
you know, we'd get our pajamas on, <laughs> <We'd> literally <laughs> be working with our laptops. And, but it was just so nice because we weren't dispersed. We were all in the same place. So we were like in the office together, in the house together. We were together a lot. And yeah. Um, yeah, it was just, and I think in startup culture, like early stage startup culture, especially in technology, you'll find that you're with your founder 24 seven, like literally you see them at their worst, you see them at their best. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you, you wake up together, you go to sleep together, Yeah, you know? So it's like a very much family culture. Um, and that's how it was, you know, when we're starting a business, we we're always in the same space. You can't, like, if you're starting, you know, early stage and you have to, I mean, there's there's boundaries and I guess everyone's different. Like, we were, we didn't have families or anything. We were all just, like, together. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it depends on the culture that you're creating and your circumstances. But for us, it was absolutely fine for us to just do work and life yeah. holistically. Yeah. And there were no boundaries. It was just, like, this <laughs> flow. <laughs> oh, man. Which was, um, it was funny. They were the fun days. I don't know if I could do that again. But um, we used to have so much fun. We used to have a lot of fun doing that. It was it was a great, great experience. It sounds like uh, it's even deeper than a marriage, the, the amount of time that you, <laughs> you know, spend with your co-founder. And uh, Ridiculous. I wanted to even touch on the trust that we were speaking about because uh, you're a board member of a few organizations. And I'm sure not a lot of people even think about being a board member and what that entails. Yeah. But before you even become one, it sounds like a, you know a, a pretty big title. And I imagine that you need to have people that you trust on your board or whoever you invite. But uh, walk me through how you even got into that um, space to even be considered to be a board member and what exactly is a board member? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because it wasn't something that I'd planned to do. Um, I'm a board member in my family business just because I'm a shareholder and that's where I sit. So mm. I, I kind of had experience um being on the board in that space and then I was asked to be a board member for a, um, a couple of non-for-profits in the tech space um, and I think I was asked because of the diversity piece mostly oh really <laughs> yeah I think you know oh. sometimes it is kind of like oh we need women and we need you know d diverse perspectives which is absolutely fair enough yeah so you know that those are the times I've been asked to do boards and then obviously investing in in small you know startups and stuff like that I've sat on boards in that respect as well when I've mm. done investing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time when I sit on boards, it's from it's because of, it's a founder that I know mm. who I've invested in and who I'm advising. You know a lot of people, man. Everyone's about who you know, <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, so it's that side. And they're very small, very early stage. You know, you see yourself in them and you see you know you, you just basically guiding them on not screwing up in the ways that you screwed up mm. and also um you know being you know giving them kind of strategic direction um giving them counsel making sure um you know they're doing everything in the best possible way because you know i guess the biggest deal breakers and this is what comes back to the whole trusting and the whole community thing um one of the biggest kind of screw ups in startup world is is the founders like falling out Really? Yeah. It like happens a lot more than you think? It happens a lot more than you think, like in the sense of like, you know, you get these three people that come together, they have this big vision and then, you know, it goes through and then, you know, somehow you're always going to lose someone along the way. Mm. And, it, you know, unfortunately that can happen quite a lot. Um, and, you know, it might be a difference of opinion or whatever. Stole someone's pajamas that evening, right? whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> but that, and it's because it, it's stressful. Um, and, you know, that dynamic, that team, that really early stage team, 
if it's not built on really strong foundations, it can kind of go a bit crazy and actually can cause issues within the business. And um, I think, you know, for me, it was kind of like always making sure that I was guiding, you know, them into, you know, what, you know, building a strong team looked like from a really early stage. Because a lot of people think, oh, when I've got my Series A, that's when I'm going to think about hiring. Mm. That's when I'm going to think about what culture looks like within my organization. Culture begins in you. It begins with your own core values, your belief systems. It begins with how you perceive others, the way that you listen to people. So it's all about really the early stage of those maybe first three or four people within your business. That's what's shaping the early culture. Anyone who comes into that is either going to you know, I guess, influence it or fall in line with it. And if you have like a kind of toxic environment at the early stages, then you're going to scale a toxic culture. Yeah. So with a lot of the work that I've done, obviously my 10 years of like being a headhunter and obviously building um, product around We Love Work, which actually measures, you know, organizational culture and supports companies in building happy, resilient teams, you know, that in, in itself has been a lifesaver because obviously I've built, a number of businesses and overseen a lot of businesses and um you know a lot of that's overlooked by people the importance of culture at a very early stage and how it is a competitive advantage and how it is really a tool in scaling your business and actually attracting people within into your business yeah it's a good point in fact i remember there was a time i worked at a company and i never asked those probing questions before i started probably not good to say in front of a headhunter but <laughs> I went to a culture that was pretty toxic mm -hmm. and obviously you can't figure out the culture, at least on a surface level, you can before you start a job. And when I was there, I realized, man, this culture is pretty toxic. I mean, backbiting and blah, blah, blah happened mm -hmm. there. And it almost got to the point that, you know, you figure out that, yeah, you can't scale if you have this kind of culture because it just perpetuates and it's sort of top down and whatever they say, the person under them is going to do and the person under them right. is going to do and it just continues to proliferate. But that was one thing that I learned. And the second thing as well was quite surprising or maybe not so surprising now in retrospect, but if you have a good enough product mm -hmm. that sometimes that can be the mask that is able to alleviate all the other problems. Well, not alleviate them, but it sort of masks all the other things. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I'm saying that is because our product was so unique and we had mm. so much leverage. We were like the dominant player. Everyone had to use us. Yeah. That it didn't matter how bad the culture was or anything mm -hmm. like that. Our customers were beholden to us. Other people that wanted to be in the space had to work with us. And I thought to myself, wow, all right, it sucks that it's a bad mm. culture, but they have such a... Um, hold or so much leverage as a as a company or as a yeah. firm that all these other things which are important don't get me wrong but the reason the firm was able to survive and go as long as it did was because the technology was simply so brilliant yeah. it masked all the yeah. other things you know what I mean yeah yeah I think that can definitely be the case I think people will you know stomach it I feel that you know generations coming above uh, under us mm. aren't gonna be as tolerant mm. I think I think, you know, generations, maybe like our generation, generations above were, were tolerant and mm. would put up with that type of environment. Mm. But I think, you know, there's a massive awakening and I think people want to be happy and care about their well-being enough to want to have to deal with a really toxic culture in a horrible environment just for a paycheck. It's almost like you're selling your soul, right? Yeah, yeah. For what? Like people can see even lockdowns taught us so much 
about this rat race that we're in that just sucks and like yeah. why why do we do it yeah so it's kind of like an awakening like no we can have a better quality of life we can have better outcomes we can have a greater well-being we we need to take care of our mental health um you know there's just so much more that people are now accustomed and understanding and they're like well actually my life used to look like this and I don't accept that anymore. Yeah. I, I want better. Yeah. I deserve better. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, we've maybe had, you know, I would say corporate culture is dying, if not dead. Okay. And that's, you it's know, a bold I statement. think Yeah, I feel like corporate culture is dying and it's 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 over and the and new new cultures will emerge, new ways of doing things. And you know, companies that don't adapt to that will lose long term mm. and when they do lose despite having an amazing product they're going to lose massively and it's going to impact them because if you can't get the people you can't scale the business mm. and not only that the cost of losing is huge i mean it it's it's you know i think the cost of of disengaged employees and losing people is up to about 360 billion Wow. Just in the UK alone, that okay. companies spend on on dis on trying to re-engage or replace employees that have jumped ship. Yeah. And it can happen quite quickly. Okay. And I think, you know, now you're getting very smart people who, you know, want to work in an environment where, you know, it's not toxic and they don't feel super stressed and they don't feel like they know they're having to kind of compromise on their quality of life and stuff like that. So it can be done. Um, it's just it's just evolving slowly, you yeah. know. I think you can have both. You can have the amazing product and you can have the, the awesome culture at the same time. It doesn't have to be perfect. There's gonna be never gonna be a perfect um environment, but there's gonna be environments that are much better. People aren't tolerating it anymore. Yeah. I recall you know? back in the US when I used to live there. Um, a lot of the smart MBAs from Harvard or whatever it is, they didn't want to go to Wall Street and instead opted to go to the Silicon Valley. Yeah, to like big tech. Big tech, sure. exactly, where you had the bean bags and the free exactly. food and all that kind of stuff. Because even though you might get paid slightly less, even though that wasn't necessarily true, often mm -hmm. they get paid as much, or if not more, but having a good journey or enjoying the journey along the way is as important. You know, you don't yeah. want to go somewhere and go home at the end of the day thinking, man, this sucked. I definitely mm. don't want to go back the next day. At a certain point, you're like, man, it's not worth the paycheck at a certain point. And I think you're 100% right. Having a better culture leads to better employees, which mm -hmm. leads to better product, which it has cascading effects right mm -hmm. along the way. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we could probably talk about culture all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, th there's so much we could talk about. I know we're kind of running out of time, but sort of what are you working on at the moment? I know that you're raising and you're, you know, doing some interesting things there, but I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, I've always got my finger in multiple pies. Uh, <laughs> always <laughs> like I kind of I, I've always you know very much an entrepreneur at heart love building businesses love mm. being involved in lots of different things um my kind of key focuses at the moment are in obviously the building and the scaling of of my company we love work mm. um been working on it it's my baby in the technology space yeah and um it's very very exciting time in fact COVID has just made you know the product so much more relevant so well, what much is the product needed. by the way i mean right so basically we create we um we create chatbots okay that speak to employees basically and they collect anonymized um feedback from employees okay um on culture 
on diversity and inclusion, on compensation, stuff you can't see the manager directly. Right. Yeah. That's exactly it. And we but we gamify. So unlike other products in the market like mm. pecans and the cult tramps, we gamify the whole process. So we get much higher engagement, although up to about 40% higher engagement from employees nice. and from people deploying the, the chatbots as well. And then they give real-time insight. So they give companies notifications. So for example, if we pushed out um, you know, a chatbot that was speaking to employees about their pay. Are you happy with your pay? Are you happy with your compensation? Do you never, feel your compensation? Never is happy. <laughs> <laughs> or do you feel like this environment is inclusive? Like, do you feel like you belong here? Do you mm. feel like, you, you know, you're um, respected for who you are? Do you feel like you can be your true self and your full self at work? In your pajamas and all. Right? <laughs> and it, it asks questions, but it's, it's basically a psychometric. So let's say we're creating, like, you know, we, we've created a psychometric around culture it's like the the, the Myers Briggs of culture, really, but it's 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 deployed through a chatbot in a gamified um, uh, kind of chatbot that enables people to kind of like you know it's a fun way of collecting the data. It's very very highly engaged. We get great results when we push the data out to employees, and then it's pushed back to companies in notification form. And there and it basically the signal to the the response time is much quicker. Mm. So traditionally, if surveys are sent out, you can imagine you get an email from your employer and you're like, oh my god, I have to you know Ugh, answer all these awful survey. questions uh survey fatigue this yeah. is awful <laughs> oh let me just type what they th- i think they want to say yeah. da, 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 you know yeah awful then by the time it gets back to hr they spend about 12 months looking through the data and then nothing gets done yeah same old same old and then by that time people have just disengaged and they've left because they just get disillusioned with the whole you know all the issues and all the weaknesses within the organization maybe pertaining to their culture mm. And then you get your kind of like open letters that start leaking out of organizations and stuff yeah, like that about, yeah. you know, that, you know, employees aren't happy. They're not being treated very well, you know, or they're jumping ship. You know, they're, they're, they're speaking to the headhunters and they're saying, yeah, get me another role at this company. And that's yeah. hugely costly and disruptive. So we're eliminating this by um, solving a company's recruitment, engagement and retention problems um, through this this chatbot. And actually, um, it's a really great way to engage employees and to have continuous communication. So we're creating a safe space for employees to provide anonymized feedback and actually for companies to actually act on that feedback because it enables them to act immediately Mm. through the the insights um, and the real time, um, uh, you know, feedback that we give them. Um, and also we have a community of consultants and coaches as well, which we connect the companies to. So it's all about kind of the life cycle of change, Yeah. how change is really difficult within organizations. A lot of, you know, although up to 70% of organizational change projects fail. Really? And it's because, and it's because com- employees aren't engaged. I see. They're not engaged. There's resistance, there's fear. And, you know, we all hear it, even with the latest in, in you know, the paper about Google. There's all these reports that come out, but there's nothing really that's actually happening. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think it, it's a difficult thing, but um, the key is in engagement and the key is in, you know, creating a safe space for people to provide feedback that can actually be acted upon. Mm. And that there can be kind of like, you know, actions that come from it that actually, you know, make improvements. So, so this has come from actually... You know, my experience as a headhunter myself. Really? Placing someone like yourself into a role where you're like, oh my God, the, the, to- the culture's toxic. Get me out of here. Yeah. And it's not based on, you know, whether you're capable for the job. You know, you're very intelligent. You're very capable of doing your job. But, you know, the experience you have from one company to the next can be so different. Yeah. 
and actually can actually impact your your health, can impact your emotional health, you know, can impact a lot of things, even yeah. your performance. So yeah. it's about helping companies to get it right. Yeah. I'm not going to necessarily be perfect, but there can be lots of improvements that are made. I think now more than ever, we've got 53% of people working remotely. How do companies keep you know their employees engaged and feeling connected yeah um there's a lot to there's a lot of work to be done in that space yeah so that's why it's it's been a really interesting curve for us covid we knew it was always coming future of work we knew remote working was going to be the future we knew this corporate culture and this rat race was going to disperse and there was going to be a new way um but it's just um accelerated COVID has been definitely a catalyst to push it forward. So it's a very exciting space and it's a space close to my heart because I've obviously spent 15 years working with people in companies. And, you know, we spend majority of our time working. Working shouldn't be something that, you know, impacts us in a negative way. Mm. It should be something that we love to do and that we get totally fulfilled with. And it's something that for me is brings about prosperity and, um, you know, in many ways, not just money. It's not just about, you know, selling your soul for a paycheck. It's about how your experience at work is fulfilling a lot of your your needs and actually making you help you grow and develop as an individual. Um, you want to create amazing places to work for people of all nationalities, colors, genders. You know, everyone should have a great experience. You should be a sponsor for like Glassdoor or something like that. I feel, <laughs> I feel like that's a natural synergy there because you're so passionate about it and, you know, you definitely want to see a change in the world. And most people talk about it, but other people do something about it. And the yeah. fact that you're actually executing on it, I think, is a great thing. Um, how often people will interact with chatbots and things like that, I personally don't know. But if I guess it's anonymized and things like that, then most people will be comfortable enough to share it um, and not have to fill in the 17th survey monkey form that you get sent, right. um, which is which is annoying on its own. But uh, yeah, it's a pleasure that uh, you're able to join us on the show. Um, how can people reach out to you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess through like social media platforms, probably the easiest way, um, Twitter, Twitter, okay. So um, my Twitter handle is at Paris Petgrave. Okay. I think my Instagram is at Paris P247. Okay. Um, or obviously LinkedIn, which is Paris Petgrave. There and you, you can find me there if you want to reach out. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, just drop me a line. Very quite responsive normally after a few days. But <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. <laughs>